0: Glad you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout 2020, we have been reading through the Bible, and it has culminated to this moment where we open up the New Testament and see how God enters history in a personal way. It makes it unmistakably clear that he is with us, he is relentlessly on our side, and doing everything possible to rescue us. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we learn how to live and be people who love sacrificially, seek justice, and extend God's mercy. We're excited to dive into this series together and would enjoy it even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Based on the account from the four Gospels. So you're a king, are you, the Roman soldiers jeered. Then you'll need a crown and a robe They gave Jesus a crown made out of thorns and put a purple robe on him and pretended to bow down to him. Your majesty, they said. Then they whipped him and spat on him. They didn't understand that this was the Prince of Life, the King of heaven and earth, who had come to rescue them. The soldiers made him a sign, Our King, and nailed it to a wooden cross. They walked up a hill outside the city. Jesus carried the cross on his back. Jesus had never done anything wrong, but they were going to kill him the way criminals were killed. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus gasped. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted but you can't even rescue yourself." But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he'd called. If you were really the Son of God, you could just climb down off that cross, they said. And of course, they were right. Jesus could have just climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop, like when he healed that little girl and stilled the storm, and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time, and the last, when he spoke, nothing happened just a horrible, endless silence. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down Jesus' face, the face of the one who would wipe away every tear from every eye. Even though it was midday, a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. The great mountains shook. Rocks split in two until it seemed that the whole world would break, that creation itself would tear apart. The full force of the storm of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down on his own son instead of his people. It was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy his children whose hearts were filled with sin. Then Jesus shouted out in a loud voice, It is finished! And it was. He had done it. Jesus had rescued the whole world. Father, Jesus cried, I give you my life. And with a great sigh, he let himself die. Strange clouds and shadows filled the sky. Purple, orange, black, like a bruise. Jesus' friends gently carried Jesus. They laid Jesus in a new tomb carved out of rock. How could Jesus die? What had gone wrong? What did it mean? They didn't know anything anymore, except they did know their hearts were breaking. That's the end of Jesus, the leaders said. But just to be sure, they sent strong soldiers to guard the tomb. They hold a huge stone in front of the door to the tomb so that no one could get in or out.
1: Welcome to the second Good Friday service of 2020. The question that hangs over Good Friday uh, and that story we just read is, where is God when the sun stops shining? And can you imagine for a moment To be the disciples, the men and women who follow Jesus at the foot of the cross, as the sun stops shining and it goes completely dark at three o'clock in the afternoon. What must that have felt like in the moment? What must it have felt like when Jesus, the chosen one of God, who they believed to be the Messiah who would free them cries out and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that could not have sounded like a moment of victory or the triumphal cry of achieving the goal they all long for. Or how about the moment when Jesus breathes his last and shouts out, It is finished. To the people who first heard that in the moment, it couldn't sound like victory. It could only sound like defeat because there is no victory in death. In that moment when Jesus cries out and breathes his last, you can only feel the heartbreak, the loss of all of the hopes and dreams that Jesus had promised to fulfill. You see, there are some moments in our lives, there are some events, some circumstances, some situations where the sun stops shining and it is incredibly difficult to see where God is in those moments. There are some days it is way more difficult to see that God is at work than others, aren't there? You see, when we come to the foot of the cross with the men and women who follow Jesus, we're confronted with all of those questions of where is God? What is he doing? And why has he forsaken us? And what we see at the foot of the cross is the the crux of the entire story that we've been walking through this year in 2020 in the Love This Book series And I believe that if there is any year that it was appropriate to walk through the entirety of Scripture from beginning to end, it was the year 2020. Because it's 2020, unlike any other year I can remember, and I know I'm not that old, but unlike any year I can remember, it has forced us to a place where we have to ask those questions. God, where are you? And what are you doing? What in the world is happening It forces us to that place where we have to say, if God is real, and the world is the way the world is, then what kind of God is he? And yet, what we see in the Love This Book series, as we walk through the story of scripture, is that from beginning to end, the story of scripture doesn't shy away from the hard parts of life. I mean, in the story, there is intense violence, There's hatred, there's sin, there's racism, there's rape, there's murder, there's suffering. And yet again and again and again, the authors of scripture continue back to this refrain, continue back to this belief that even when the sun stops shining, God is at work. They continue telling the story that even in our darkest moments, God is still moving. That their story is one of God breaking into the hatred and the violence, breaking into the oppression, breaking into the guilt, breaking into the suffering and offering hope, healing and new life. And yet again, it is so difficult for us to see that on some days. How do we live in the tension of the world so broken and seemingly hopeless, and yet our story being one of hope and new life? I mean, how do we carry those two tensions in honesty and integrity and in truth? And I think the answer is found at the foot of the cross. Because it's at the foot of the cross that we come and we have all of our questions. God, where are you? God, where is the light? Where is the hope? What are you doing? Why have you forsaken us? And yet that cross is the place that perfectly holds that tension. Because at the cross, we see a God who is still at work even when the sun stops shining even when it looks like all hope is lost. And today I'd actually like, as we reflect on the cross, to jump out of the story of the cross and, and jump to a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, one of the followers of Jesus, who has the privilege to look back on the cross after it's passed a, a few years later and reflect on the meaning of Christ's death, to reflect on what it is God was doing in the cross, to reflect on how God was still at work. And it's so interesting, he begins this reflection on the cross by saying this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. You see, what Paul is saying is that from a a human perspective, when you look at the cross, all you see is defeat. From a human perspective, when you look at the cross, all you see is death. There is no victory. And yet he says, when you have the lens of heaven, the vision of God's story, you begin to see the cross in a different way, and that what looks like the defeat of Jesus is actually the place that pronounces his victory over sin and death and the brokenness of the world. And so then the question is, is how does the cross accomplish this? How does the cross lead us to a place of healing and restoration and hope? How does this place of death and devastation offer us the hope that we're looking for? And he goes on and he says this a few verses later. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, there's a word that pops out a few times in that passage, reconciliation. Paul is saying that at the cross, what Jesus has accomplished is the reconciliation of people and the world. That through the cross of Christ, through his death, he is reconciling all people and the world to himself. Now, we aren't often sure what that term reconciliation actually means, what it actually looks like. We don't have very many examples of it, but I like one way a theologian puts it. Brenda Brenda Salter McNeil puts it this way. Reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all creation to flourish. Now, I really like the way that she puts this because I think it it, it really encapsulates and captures the full breadth of what reconciliation is. So I'm going to read it one more time. Reconciliation is an ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention for all of creation to flourish. See, I love this definition of reconciliation because we often don't recognize our need for reconciliation. It's sometimes hard for us to recognize the ways that we need to be reconciled to God. But the story of Scripture says there's two primary consequences for our sin, two primary ways that we need to be reconciled. And the first uh, consequence of sin is that Sin has broken people. All of us have been broken by the effects of sin on our life, both by what we have done and what has been done to us. John Stott that says people are are cursed with strong ideals and weak wills. We want to live a good life. We want to do what's best for us. We want to do what's best for other people. And yet we cannot escape our captivity to our self-centeredness. We cannot get out of the way of harming ourselves and harming other people. And that harm that we inflict on ourselves, that harm that we inflict on others, causes a separation, a rift in our relationship with God. It causes us to alienate ourselves from God. And so we are in need of reconciliation to him. And I was thinking about that this week, and I don't know if anyone has seen the the fires that are going on up by Estes Park, but across the north of our city the last few days, there's just been a huge, huge uh, pillar of smoke going across the entire northern part of our state and northern part of our city because of these fires that are raging And and we've been living with these forest fires all summer long, and I don't know about you, but it feels very different than a normal Colorado summer. I know we've had forest fires before, but I don't remember the last time I saw the sun less in summer in Colorado. I mean, we're supposed to have sun 300 days out of the year, and yet it felt like it was constantly blocked by this haze and this smoke from all of these forest fires. And I think it's actually a helpful metaphor in us understanding what it is that our sin does. Our our sin is like the fire that that ravages and destroys everything in its path. It destroys our lives and the lives of those around us. And it, it causes this huge smoke, this pillar, this cloud of smog that covers the sun and shields us from experiencing its warmth. And our sin is so like that. It, it, it ravages and destroys everything around us, but it produces this smoke, this pollutant that blocks our view of God. It dims our ability to be in connection with him. It creates separation from us. It does not allow us to experience the warmth of God's presence. And what Paul is saying in this passage as he looks back on the cross is that what the cross has accomplished is that it has dispersed that smoke. It is the rain that quenches that fire and douses the flames and allows us back into God's presence. It it breaks down the barriers that have separated us from God and allows us to be in relationship with him once again. But We often think of of sin in those terms, don't we? It's the things that I do and it's the things that you do. It's the bad actions people take. It's it's the ways that they are willfully or or even unwillfully disobedient to God. And yet, Paul broadens the view of, of the detriment of sin, of the devastation that it causes. And he says that sin is not just something that, that affects individuals, but that it has actually broken the world. That sin has actually destroyed the fabric of creation, it has destroyed the original tent that God created it with for flourishing, that it has affected every system and institution. Every element of the created order is broken and marred by the effects of sin. And if you'll please, please, please forgive me this illustration, this metaphor, because I think for for a lot of us, it's too soon. But in many ways, the way Paul describes sin and its effect on the world is, is the same way we might describe the effects of the pandemic that we've been living through. I mean, the pandemic is so much broader, so much bigger than than my individual actions or your individual actions. There's nothing we can do as individuals to affect it. And yet this pandemic has affected every person universally. It's affected every institution. It's affected every system, every structure in the world. We have all been universally affected by it. And that is what Paul is saying is when we see the effects of sin, when we see the brokenness that it causes... It's not just people who are broken. And it's not just broken people who make up the institutions, and so they're broken. The institutions and systems of the world themselves are broken and corrupt and decaying and affected by the disease of sin. And yet, Paul says that God is reconciling the world to himself, that all things are being brought back into the original way that they were intended for, for flourishing for joy and for relationship with him that all things are being reconciled to the way that they were intended to be. And so the cross is is broad in scope. It has so much more to do than just personal reconciliation. It has to do with God restoring and redeeming everything that was marred and destroyed by the brokenness of sin. Richard Viotis puts it this way. Sin is not just something that we do, but a power that humanity is under. We can't educate ourselves out of its grip and we don't overcome it through progressive achievements nor by moral consistency. The antidote for sin is found in a power outside of ourselves, the cross of Christ. That is the only antidote that we have for the, for the sin and devastation that we see in our world. But let's face it, whether physical or spiritual, it is hard to see God at work in the midst of a pandemic. It is so hard some days to see that God is actually doing something about our broken world. It's difficult to see that there's any sort of hope. And so some of us, we live in a state of of resignation. We look at the world and we think it will never get better people don't change, systems don't change, nothing is going to change. And so we live in hopeless despair because the world just doesn't get better. And then others of us, we take a different approach. We see the world and the effects of sin and the devastation that it causes. And we think if God's not going to do something, then I will. And so through our own self-reliance, our own strength, we try to pursue the things that we think will make the world a better place. And so we chase after the the systems that are broken and the structures that are broken and say, if we can just fix this, if we can just get the right people in place, then everything will go back to the way it was meant to be. And we try to do it apart from God. And what Paul is calling us to is he's saying that reconciliation comes from God and not from us. The only antidote that we have is the cross of Christ. Is the only thing that offers a solution to the problems and sins and sickness and disease and brokenness and violence that we see in this world. And it's so interesting. Paul says that all of this, all of this reconciliation comes from God, it comes from outside of ourselves. It's a gift. But he also gives a second gift, Paul says. And he says, as God is reconciling the world and and giving us that gift of reconciliation and, and bringing all things and all people back into relationship with him, that he calls us to be ambassadors of that message, that he invites us to be ministers of reconciliation, to join God in the work that he is doing in the world, that the people of God are to be people who carry out that message of reconciliation, that administer reconciliation to the world, that is broken and longing for something to be done. And again, it can be hard to see where God is at work. And if we are are the people called to join God in his work, we have to know where he's at work. And so we can't live in this space of resignation where where God isn't doing anything, and neither can we live in this this space of self-reliance where we can take matters into our own hands. We see where God is at work, reconciling all things, and we join him in that work as the people of God. And so I would like to humbly offer today just a few places where I think I've seen God at work over the last few months and years. Because I think there are particular moments in time where God calls the people of God to carry this this message of reconciliation. There are certain times where the spirit of God moves in a particular way to to rectify and to speak against and to to try to, to reconcile the areas of the world that are broken, the systems of the world that are broken. And in those moments, it's the, the duty and responsibility of the church to be reconciled to God and join him in that work. And so the first area that I would say that I, I see God reconciling, and this is always true, but, but God is reconciling people to himself. God is reconciling people to himself, people who are broken and hurting. It's so fascinating to me that, that I talk to so many people who are afraid to be reconciled to God. Sometimes the hardest thing for us to look at is a mirror, to see the image of our life reflected back to us. Some of us are so afraid to be honest about our brokenness and our sin, to be honest about the state of our lives, that we live in a space where we would just rather ignore it and set it to the side. We're really gifted at living almost mindlessly, where we can ignore the sin that is weighing us down and that we are captive to. And yet God still moves and reconciles people to himself. God is unconditionally loving. That means he loves even the darkest parts of ourselves. And you saw at the beginning of this service a a beautiful moment of baptism. And we had so many people sharing stories. Almost 20 people who were baptized. And we had people from ages 6 to 60 declaring their allegiance for Christ through the act of baptism. But more than that, declaring and and demonstrating what God has done to reconcile them to himself. We had people who, who shared stories of coming through divorce. People who have been reconciled out of situations of abuse. Children who have declared that they want to live their life for Jesus. One moment that particularly struck me and I think will mark me for a long time is we had a mother who had recently lost her daughter get baptized with her daughter's friend is a declaration that even in tragic loss, she is still committed to following Jesus. That is what our God does. He reconciles and restores and brings new life where there's devastation and loss and death. And so if you are in a space where you have felt afraid of being reconciled to God, if you are afraid of looking in the mirror, if you are afraid and unwilling to to say that my life is a mess and broken and that I need Jesus, I would encourage you to to talk to me or to Larry or to one of our other uh, members of the staff who would love to talk with you about what that looks like to receive God's gift of reconciliation. Because one of the things you see through scripture is that, that we were fundamentally created to be receivers, not to be achievers. And I don't know if there's something more countercultural that I can say to a, a group of Americans than you were not made to achieve, right? Like we live for achievement. We're told to work hard and, and to, to achieve our dreams and chase after what we want. And, and if we do those things, everything that we want can be achieved. And yet the only antidote that we have, the only answer we have to the longing we have is the cross of Christ. The story of scripture is that we cannot achieve anything, but God has achieved what we need and and we can receive that. There's a second place that I think I've seen God at work and and this one is particularly close to home because it's part of my story to be honest with you. But I think I see God at work reconciling the church. And that might sound like a weird statement. The people of God are already supposedly the people who are reconciled to God. And yet we all know that the church is deeply, deeply broken. I mean, there are some of you here today who carry deep wounds from the church. There's so many different times where the church has not lived up to who God has called the people of God to be. The institution is broken. There are so many people I know who who lay awake at night and struggle with whether or not they want to stay a part of the church. Is it worth it to stay a part of the church when it keeps inflicting wounds on them? Wounds of, of not listening to women who come forward. Wounds of young people and teenagers and college students who feel like the church has no place for them. Wounds of people who have questioned and doubted and wrestled and said, why does scripture say this and why does God do things this way? And the church's answer has been, don't worry about the things that don't make sense. And there's so many different ways that the the church can wound its people. And as one of our staff members said this week in a meeting said so that the wounding from the church runs deeper, doesn't it? I mean, it's not the same as a wound you might receive from a friend or from a boss or a coworker. I mean, the wounding of the church runs deeper because the church is the place that is supposed to represent God's voice in your life. The church is the place that you are supposed to hear from God about who you are and who God is. And when the church sends wounding messages about people's singleness or brokenness or their stories or their doubts, it's as if God is looking at us and saying that you are not right or fit for my community. And so those wounds run deep. And yet where I see God at work in the midst of that, in the midst of that woundedness, I see God calling people to embody the things that the church is supposed to be, people who are choosing to stay in the church despite the wounds that it has inflicted on them. I see people who are willing to try to reform and restore and redeem the image of the church. There's a great story of an ancient saint, Francis of Assisi, who had a dream one night that God came to him and and he was living in a broken down, beat up old church that was no longer in use and God came to him and said, rebuild and restore my church. And are so many of you that that is, is what you are living out practically by choosing to be a part of the church, rebuilding and restoring the image of the church that is broken and we need you. We need you to speak up. We need you to share your stories. We need you to help the church be better so that we can be a place of healing. There's so many stories of people in these seats who have come to Waterstone and it has been a place of healing, but we want to do even better. And I'm encouraged and excited because I think God is refining and reforming his church to be beautiful and not just broken, And the final way that I would offer that I see God at work in a big way, and again, there's so many more than just these three. These are just three that that I'd like to point out today. God is at work in so many ways, and and, and we can look for his work and join it where it is. But the third is, is I think I see God at work in the reconciliation of the races, While while the systems of racism and and the structures that that, uh, represent racism, many of them have been torn down, there's still a spirit of racism that permeates our world. And there are so many Christians who are rising up who see their relationship with Jesus, their life of faith, their life in the church as central to their following of Jesus, the reconciliation of the races, to see the races reconciled to see the barriers that divide us broken down. And I know when I say that, there might be some in the room who think there's a lot going on in the racial reconciliation movement that doesn't feel like reconciliation. It feels a lot more like retaliation. The actions and the ideas and the theories that are proposed about how to restore and how to reconcile the races, a lot of that does not look like the biblical view of reconciliation. And so our defenses come up and we think, ah, is that where God's at work? And yet I would offer you this. How can we look at the world and and the attempts it is making at reconciling the racial tension that we feel and say, you don't have a biblical perspective on what reconciliation is, so I'm not going to join you. I mean, how would we expect the world to come up with the solutions that Christ offers when the church at best is silent and at worst is in opposition? How would we expect the world to have a biblical view of what reconciliation can look like, that it moves beyond retaliation when the church is not lending its voice to the conversation? And yet where I'm encouraged and where I see God moving is, is again in these Christians and these followers of Jesus who think that that is a central part of their faith, of following Jesus, seeing the racial tension reconciled. And I think one of the places I see that most clearly and most beautifully is in this idea that, that people in the church are catching a vision for what heaven looks like. Because heaven isn't colorblind. colorblind. You see, what I see is that that so often we we don't want people to be judged by the color of their skin. And that is good and true and noble and just. We don't want people to, to have particular social or economic advantage because of the color of their skin. And so we we say things like, I don't see color. I just see people. And yet what I would say to us and what I see happening in the church is that we are catching a vision of heaven that God is not colorblind. This is what it says in Revelation. I looked and behold a great multitude in heaven that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. See, if God wanted us to be colorblind, then he would have created us one color. And yet what we see in God and in the diversity of the human race is actually the creativity of a God who allows different people with different cultures and different languages to represent and bear his image. And the place of the church is a place where we experience that and where we can lift one another up and not divide one another by the color of our skin. The church is beginning to see and color and celebrate the diversity of our God who creates in bold and beautiful, diverse colors. What's fascinating to me is how Paul starts this whole passage about reconciliation and what God is doing, is he says that Christ died for all, for all people everywhere. I don't under, I don't think we always understand what a radical statement that is for a Jewish religious person to make—that Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel, died for all people everywhere. That was so countercultural to what they thought the Messiah would be. Messiah die for everyone, and yet that is what Paul says brings about the reconciliation that the world is longing for and that invites us to be ambassadors and messengers of reconciliation. And so my prayer for us, the church of Waterstone, is this. May we, the people of Waterstone, be a people who are compelled by the love of Christ to not live for ourselves, but to live for him who died for us. May we, the people of Waterstone, be a people who experience the gift of reconciliation from God. And may we, the people of Waterstone, be ambassadors and ministers of that reconciliation to the world, so that they might see that God is still at work, even when the sun stops shining. Amen.